August 1964, U.S. and North Vietnamese forces face off in a corner of the South China Sea. Swift and sure has been U.S. retaliation for communist PT boat attacks on the high seas. This is the Maddox, one of the two destroyers that were attacked while patrolling international waters in the Gulf of Tonkin near North Vietnam. Warplanes from two carriers, the Ticonderoga and the Constellation, avenged the unwarranted red assault with 64 sorties to North Vietnam PT bases. 25 boats, more than half the fleet, were destroyed. And North Vietnam oil reserves badly depleted. It is estimated 10% went up in flames after direct hits. The Pentagon said two pilots were lost. One was reported to be a prisoner of the Reds. The U.S. sorties were launched for one purpose, as a warning to the communists that unprovoked attacks will bring prompt response. Questions about the Gulf of Tonkin incident have persisted for more than 50 years. But what is clear is that it was the first international incident of Lyndon Johnson's presidency and a major turning point in U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia. Coming up, calls with Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy, and House and Senate leaders as President Johnson escalates U.S. military action in Vietnam. First, joining us by phone, Mark Silverstone, Associate Professor and Chair of the Presidential Recordings Program at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Professor Silverstone, first, please describe the reported Gulf of Tonkin incidents in August 1964. The United States had been engaged in uh, supporting South Vietnam in its uh, defense against communist insurgency for years, uh, going back into the Kennedy administration. And, and by the summer of 1964, things were not looking terribly good uh, for, for um, American efforts. Uh, President Johnson, who had come into office with the assassination of, of President Kennedy in November of 1963, uh, uh, inherited a situation that was rapidly declining. Uh, there had been an additional coup against the South Vietnamese government at the end of January 1964. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara had gone back to Vietnam in March of that year and had reported that uh, while certain aspects of of the assistance effort were moving along better than expected, others were not. And uh, while McNamara and President Kennedy had been interested in seeking to remove American troops from Vietnam by 1965, by spring of 1964, it was clear that that was not going to be possible. So the question really became how to get more Americans involved in Vietnam as opposed to bringing them home. At the same time, the Johnson administration had been considering uh, more offensive operations uh, against the South Vietnamese communists as well as against North Vietnam and decisions to take the war to the North had been ongoing uh, decision-making uh, uh, regarding operations against the North had been ongoing since uh, December of 1963. By the summer of 1964, the Johnson administration was actively considering those measures. measures. There was uh, a possibility that uh, Johnson might reach for some congressional authorization to, to take the war north. However, since he was still involved in efforts to pass the Civil Rights Act, uh, the decision was made not to pursue it at that time. Uh, and then all of a sudden, in July, late July 1964, there was an incident off the coast of, of North Vietnam in the Gulf of Tonkin that raised the stakes higher. Uh, there, were, there, were, there was an intersection of, of two dynamics. On the one hand, there was an intelligence gathering operation that was going on to try to ascertain the capabilities of uh, the North Vietnamese and their ability to respond to uh, combined U.S.-South Vietnamese efforts against them. Uh, at the same time, there were sabotage operations that the South Vietnamese were conducting against North Vietnam with U.S. support. And at the intersection of those two, really at the end of July 1964, 
North Vietnamese torpedo boats targeted an American intelligence gathering ship, the USS Maddox, thinking that it was involved in those sabotage operations, shot it up on August 2nd, 1964, and that was the first of what we refer to as the Tonkin Gulf incidents. President Johnson did not respond militarily to that uh, altercation. Uh, he uh, was on the phone repeatedly with advisors throughout the course of August 2nd and, and August 3rd into August 4th about what to do. The decision was made to send not only the USS Maddox back into the Tonkin Gulf, but also to have another destroyer, the Sea Turner Joy, um, uh, adjoin it, and at the same time uh, that uh, that Johnson did so, recognizing that there may be the possibility of another incident, he and Secretary McNamara talked about the preparation of actions they may take if uh, these American assets uh, came under fire. Uh, on the the evening of of August fourth. Uh, in uh, darkened waters, it appeared as though the Maddox was under attack. Uh, reports flowed back into into uh, Washington. I should say this is actually uh, a, a very confused event because while initial reports came in from the Maddox that they were under attack, uh, subsequent reports from the Maddox uh, indicated that they were not so sure that they were under attack. And over the course of the day, August 4th, 1964, the Johnson administration was trying to actually ascertain whether the Maddox was under attack, because if it was, Johnson was prepared to go ahead with these reprisals that he and McNamara had been considering over the course of, of the previous 48 hours. Ultimately, uh, after hours of, of this back and forth between uh, the Secretary of Defense in Washington and President Johnson and the National Military Command Center uh, uh, at the Pentagon, as well as with U.S. military officials uh, at SYNCPAC in, in Honolulu, it was determined that the Maddox was attacked. And so Johnson decided to go ahead with airstrikes against North Vietnamese bases that had presumably launched uh, uh, or, or been the, the, the staging point for, for these, these torpedo boat attacks, uh, as well as taking action against uh, North Vietnamese infrastructure, uh, electrical grids, uh, and so forth. Uh, President Johnson very much wanted to be able to tell the American public what was happening in prime time. He was frustrated throughout the course of the day that uh, the the military establishment could not ascertain conclusively, uh, at least not uh, fast enough for him, whether uh, there was an attack. And it really wasn't until late in that evening after 11.30 that Johnson uh, went on air to tell the public that the United States was taking action against North Vietnam as a result of American assets being targeted by the North Vietnamese in the Tonkin Gulf. The actions that he took, 64 air sorties against North Vietnam. It was the first actions that the United States took against North Vietnam uh, in the conflict that had been raging for years and that the United States was now getting into in a much bigger way. Uh, certainly, we would see the following year, the summer of 1965, the war would be Americanized as Johnson sent in American ground troops. But here in, in the late summer of 1964, the United States took air action against North Vietnam. And what did President Johnson want Congress to do? At the same time that Johnson is taking this military action. He is interested in getting con congressional authorization uh, for these measures. He believes that he has the authority to conduct those uh, those airstrikes, those reprisals, simply by virtue of his Article II powers. But he recognizes that uh, he will 
uh, have more support, more public support. The country will be behind him if Congress is able to provide that authorization. Johnson had also been involved in a similar action uh, with respect to the Middle East when he was Senate Majority Leader uh, in the Eisenhower administration, and American troops were deployed to uh, Lebanon. And so Johnson, uh, as a creature of the Senate, uh, understanding the importance of Congress, that is how he had gained such stature in American politics, uh, he recognizes the, the value of having Congress on board with him. And so this resolution that had been in the works really since the late spring, early summer of 1964, now gets trotted out and sent to Congress. It's uh, formally known as the Southeast Asia Resolution, comes to be known as the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. Um, it authorizes the president to uh, defend American interests uh, on the high seas off the, the coast of, of, of North Vietnam, uh, in fact, in, in, in Southeast Asia. And uh, Johnson is wildly successful in his uh, gambit to, to get the Congress behind him. Uh, there is a unanimous vote in the House of Representatives in support of this re resolution. Only two members of the Senate uh, oppose him. And so Johnson believes, uh, as he speaks about with Secretary of Defense McNamara, that he essentially has a blank check to do what he needs to do to protect American interests in Vietnam. And uh, we should say that this is all, we, we, we refer informally to the war in Vietnam, but there was not a formal declaration of war, was there? There was not a formal declaration of war in Vietnam. Uh, United States troops had started to go to Vietnam in great numbers during the Kennedy administration in late 1961. Uh, there were under 700 U.S. military advisors in Vietnam at the time that Kennedy became president. By the time that he was assassinated in November 1963, there were about 16,500 U.S. military advisors who were not uh, formally conducting combat operations, but they participated in combat operations, and they were dying as well. So the war had greatly escalated during Kennedy's time. By the summer of 1964, there were about 23,000 American troops in Vietnam without an, a, a declaration of war. Uh, and, and without any, any prior authorization, such as the one that Johnson himself got in the summer of 1964. Uh, Johnson uh, gained politically from this measure. Uh, his uh, popular standing on the war uh, was really not terribly high. Uh, more people seem to have questions about what the United States was up to in South, South Vietnam um, than, uh, than were supportive of it. Johnson's handling of the war, uh, public opinion figures were in the in the high 30s and low 40s, and as a result of the actions he took in August of 1964, they they shot up to the low 70s. Uh, those numbers would wane over the course of of the next several months uh, into November 1964, uh, when the election presidential election took place, and. That election is really important context in thinking about what Johnson does uh, in the Gulf of Tonkin, because after the first attacks on uh, August 2nd, in which the Maddox was fired upon uh, by North Vietnamese torpedo boats, Johnson does not take a mil uh, military action. Uh, and in conversation with various figures, including Republican friends, he recognizes that the country is going to start to ask questions about why he's not doing so. And so in an effort to uh, outflank the Republican candidate, Barry Goldwater, Johnson decides to uh, to take action that uh, suggests that he is, is protective of American interests. Uh, he looks tougher as a result. Uh, and uh, essentially, Vietnam really is off the table as a campaign issue for the rest of that election season. So it's, it is good politics for Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he has a lot of public support for doing it at the time. He is pledging not to get America involved in a shooting war in 
South Vietnam, and he believes that this action is supportive of that. Uh, of course, things are going to change uh, in in the the late fall of, of 1964 uh, and into the early winter of 1965 when Johnson is faced with um, and a, a a a situation that's even in more calamitous than the one that he faced in 1964, and the decision is made uh, to conduct sustained bombing of. of North Vietnam. This is only incidental bombing. It's a it's a, a single act that's not supposed to be part of any series of actions, but it will become part of of a sustained program of of bombing North Vietnam that will come to be known as Rolling Thunder. That will last from March of 1965 all the way up through uh, 1968. Mark Silverstone, associate professor and chair of the Presidential Recordings Program at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Thank you. We begin on August 3rd, 1964, in the first of several calls between the president and his defense secretary, Robert McNamara. The two talk about briefings on what happened in the Gulf of Tonkin for key members of Congress. They also talk about what to say publicly about the incident and the possible political consequences with the upcoming Democratic National Convention. You'll hear them mention Secretary of State Dean Rusk, Senate leaders Mike Mansfield and Everett Dirksen, Under Secretary of State George Ball, White House Press Secretary George Reedy, Senior Aide Walter Jenkins, and Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater. Now, I wonder if you don't think that it'd be wise to you and Rusk to get back uh, the Speaker and Mansfield to call a group of 15, 20 people together uh, from the Armed Services and Foreign Relations to tell them what happened. A good many of them are saying to me. Right. I've been thinking about this myself. I thought that uh, they're going to start an investigation yeah. if you don't, and yeah. you got Dirksen up there, and he's yeah. saying you got to study it further and say to Mansfield, now the President wants us, you to get the proper people, and we come in, and you say they fired at us. We responded to immediately and we took out one of their boats and put the other two running and we kept our we're putting our boats right there and we're not our running our name started to destroy that's right. right we're gonna go and i think i should also or we should also at that time mr president explain this op plan 34a these covert operations there's no question but what that had bearing on it friday night as you probably know we had four tp boats from vietnam manned by vietnamese or other nationals uh, attack two islands and we expended, uh, oh, a thousand rounds of ammunition, one kind or another, against them. Like we probably shot up a radar station and a few other miscellaneous buildings. And, and following 24 hours after that, with this destroyer in that same area, undoubtedly led them to connect the two events. Well, say that to Dirksen. I mean, you notice Dirksen says this morning that we we got a reassessor situation. Right, Do something right. about it. And I'd tell him that we're doing what he's talking about. Well, I, I was I was thinking during this myself in personal visits, but I think your thought is better. We'll get the group together. You want us to do it at the White House, or would you rather do it in the state? I believe it'd be better to do it uh, up on the hill. All right. I believe it'd be better if you'd say to Mansfield, you call a, you yeah. know, Foreign Relations okay. Armed Services okay. and then and, uh, get Speaker to do it over his side. We'll do it. And just say it's very, I'd tell them awfully quiet, though, so they won't go in and be making much speeches. Yeah. Tell Rusk that, that that's my idea. Yeah, very good. And he's in New York, so I don't know what he's got well, back Well, I just talked to George Ball a few minutes ago. I'll, I'll have George arrange, or at least I'll tell him that, and then I'll call the speaker and mention himself. Now, I wish that uh, you'd give me some guidance on what we ought to say. I want to leave an impression on the background and the people we talk to over here. And we're going to be firm as hell without saying something that's dangerous. Now, what do you think? Uh, uh, the people that are calling me up, uh, I just talked to a New York banker. I just talked to a fellow in Texas. They all feel that the Navy responded wonderfully, and that's good. But they want to be damn sure I don't pull them out and run, and they want to be damn sure that we're firm. That's what all the country wants, because Goldwater's raising so much hell about how he's going to blow them off the moon. And they say that we oughtn't to do anything that the national interest doesn't require. But we sure ought to always leave the impression that if you shoot at us, you're going to get hit. Well, I think you would want to instruct George uh, Reedy this morning at his news conference to say that you you personally have ordered the, the Navy to carry on the routine patrols uh, off the coast of North Vietnam uh, to add an additional destroyer to the one that has been carrying on the patrol to provide an air cap and to issue instructions to the commanders to destroy any... 
uh, force that attacks our force in international waters. Bob, if I you don't mind, do way. Well, you don't mind, call Walter Jenkins and tell him sure. that you won't dictate this to I'll me to right give to my people or George Reedy because right. I'm over at the mansion with some folks here. I'll do it right now. Okay. Thank you. President Johnson and Defense Secretary Robert McNamara on August 3rd, 1964. The two talked again the next day. Secretary McNamara refers to Pacific Fleet Commander U.S. Grant Sharp and National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy. General Wheeler and I are sitting here together. We just received a cable from Admiral Sharp making three recommendations with respect to our destroyer tracks and enemy uh, action responses. I wanted to mention them too with a recommendation. I've discussed this with, with Dean Rusk and he and and I are in agreement on the recommendation. Sharp recommends first that the uh, the track of the destroyer be shifted from 11 miles offshore to 8 miles offshore. This makes no sense to us. We would recommend against it. Uh, his purpose by shifting the track is simply to make clearer that we we believe the 12-mile limit is not an effective limit on us. We don't. We think we do that adequately by sailing at 11 miles as opposed to 8. Secondly, Sharp recommends that we authorize the tax. What reason does he give for his aid? Simply that it more clearly indicates our our refusal to accept a 12-mile restriction. We think we've clearly indicated our refusal to accept the 12-mile restriction with the with the 11-mile limit. We see no need to change the track at this time. Why? What? Uh, what other objections do you have? It it uh, changes a program that that. Uh, shouldn't be changed frequently. These orders are very precise. The tracks are laid down very clearly. They go through the three command channels to get out there. This ship is allegedly uh, to be attacked tonight. We don't like to see a change in operational plan of this kind at this time. And we don't think it achieves any any uh, international purpose. So no, certainly no military purpose is served by it. Secondly, he recommends that the task force commander be authorized to pursue the attacking vessels in the event he is attacked and destroy their bases. In this case, it was... I've got a... Uh, I can't hear him, and I've got a really important thing to do. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, secondly, he recommends that the task force commander be authorized to pursue any attacker and destroy the base that the attacker. In this instance, if he were attacked by patrol boats, it would mean that he would pursue the patrol craft into the shoreline uh, identify the base of the patrol craft and destroy that base. Now, this is an action that we might well wish to consider after the second attack, but I think it would be inappropriate, General Wheeler agrees and Dean Rusk agrees, inappropriate to provide the task force commander that authority. There will be ample time for us after a second attack to bring this problem to your attention. You can then decide how far you wish to pursue the attacker into his base area. What objections do you have for With Only the objection that if we give such authority, you have, in a sense, lost control of, of the degree of our uh, response to the North Vietnamese. You don't know exactly what bases will be attacked, where they are in relation to population centers, how much force will be applied to attack them, when it will occur. I, I personally would recommend to you, after a second attack on our ships, that we do retaliate against the coast of North Vietnam some way or other. And we'll what I was thinking about when I was eating breakfast, but I couldn't talk it. I was thinking that it uh, looks, looks to me like the weakness of our position is that uh, uh, we respond uh, only to an action, and uh, we don't have any of our own, but when they, when they move on us and they shoot at us, I think we not only ought to shoot at them, but almost simultaneously uh, uh, put one of these things that you... You've been doing right. on one of their bridges or something. Exactly. I, I quite agree with you, Mr. President. I'm not not sure that the response ought to be as that sharp suggests. Well, may not. I, I'm not either. I'm not either. I don't know unless I knew what base it was and what right. it's confirmed. But I, I wish we could have something uh, that we've already picked out and uh, and just hit about three of them damn quick. Right after. We will have that. And, and I, I talked to Mike Bundy a moment ago and told him that I thought that was the most important subject we should consider uh, today and, and be prepared to recommend to you a response, a retaliation move against North Vietnam in the event this attack takes place within the next six to nine hours. And we, right, now, we better do that at lunch. There's some yeah. things I don't want to go in with these other. I want to keep this as close as I can, so let's just try to keep it to the two or three. be prepared to, to do so at lunch. All right. Now, thirdly, Sharp recommends that that uh, the, uh, the task force commander be authorized to engage in hot pursuit beyond the 11-mile limit in as far
far as the three-mile limit, which we accept as the definition of territorial waters. At present, the instructions to the commander are, do not pursue an attacker uh, closer to shore than 11 miles. Uh, Sharp recommends that that 11-mile limit be shifted to three miles. I've talked to Dean about this. He agrees uh, as far as air pursuit is concerned. Pursue by air as close as three miles to shore. Do not pursue by sea closer than 11 miles. Uh, his reason for differentiating sea from air is that we can always argue that the, uh, the uh, air uh, uh, was further out than three miles, and he's concerned about taking the ships in as close as three miles to shore. I'm willing to accept his, his point for a different reason, however. I don't think ship pursuit uh, between 11 miles and three miles would be effective anyhow, because our ships travel at about 27 knots, and these patrol boats travel at 50 knots, and the possibility of a ship being effective in that 11 to three mile area is not very great. The air power is like the most effective power anyhow, and I would therefore recommend that we accept Sharp's recommendation, but limit it to air. Later that day, the secretary calls back with reports on a second possible attack. Mr. President, we had a, just had a report from the commander of that task force out there that they have sighted two unidentified vessels uh, and three unidentified prop aircraft. And therefore, the uh, carrier launched uh, two F-8s, two A-4Ds, and four a1s, which are probably Go back over those again. What did we launch? We launched two F-8 fighter aircraft, two A-4D, which are jet attack aircraft, and four A-1Hs, which are prop-driven aircraft. So we have launched eight aircraft from the carrier to uh, uh, examine what's in the vicinity of the destroyers and to protect the destroyers. The report is that they have observed, and we don't know by what means, whether this is radar or otherwise, I suspect it's radar, two unidentified vessels and three unidentified prop aircraft in the vicinity of the destroyers. Uh, what else do we have out there? We have that only the Ticonderoga with its aircraft uh, and a protective destroyer screen. I think there are three destroyers with the Ticonderoga. We have the Constellation, which is moving out of Haikong, and which I uh, sent orders to about an hour or two ago, to move down towards South Vietnam. We don't know exactly how long it'll take. We guess about 30 hours. We have ample forces to respond not only to these attacks on the destroyers, but also to retaliate, should you wish to do so, against targets on the land. And when I come over at noontime, I'll bring you a list of alternative target systems. We can mine the Swatow bases. We can, and I just issued orders to Subic Bay and the Philippines to fly the mines out to the carrier, so we'll be prepared to do it if you want to do it. We can destroy the Swatow craft by bombing. There is a petroleum uh, system that is concentrated. Uh, uh, 70 percent of the petroleum supply of North Vietnam, we believe, is concentrated in three uh, dumps, and we can bomb those, bomb or strafe those uh, dumps, destroy the petroleum system, which would be the petroleum for the patrol craft. In addition, there are certain prestige targets that we've been working on the last several months, and we have target folders prepared on those. For example, there is one bridge that is the the key bridge on the rail line south out of uh, out of Hanoi, and we could destroy that. And there are other prestige targets of that kind. All right. A few minutes later, the secretary calls again with an update. President, we just had word by telephone from Admiral Sharp that the uh, destroyer is under torpedo attack. I think I might get uh, Dean Rusk and Mac Bundy have come over here, and we'll go over these retaliatory actions, and then we ought to... I sure think you'll agree with that, yeah. And uh, I've got a category here. I'll call it to him. Now, where are these torpedoes coming from? Well, we don't know. Presumably from these unidentified craft that I mentioned to you a moment ago. We thought that the unidentified craft might include one, uh, one PT boat, which has torpedo capability, and two SWAT-top boats, which we don't credit with torpedo capability, although they may have it. What are these planes are running around while they're being attacked? Well, presumably the planes are attacking the, the ships. We don't have any uh, word from, from Sharp on that. The planes would be in the area at the present time, all all eight of them. Okay. Uh, you get them over there, and then you come over here. Since you I'll do that. Yeah. A few hours later, Secretary McNamara calls again, this time to tell the president that the press has learned of the incidents. You'll hear them refer to Treasury Secretary Douglas Dillon and Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Yes. 
Bob, uh, Mr. President, the story is broken on the AP and the UP. Yeah, I see it. And uh, uh, we've tried to track it down. Jim Greenfield talked to the AP, I understand, and was told it came from a source close to the Pentagon who was alleged to be a chairman of a congressional committee. I don't know what the source is, but anyhow, it's broken. And uh, it's, it seems to me state and we and, and George Reedy ought to agree now on a statement that could be made by one of the departments, I presume the Pentagon. But before doing that, I wanted to ask your permission to do so. The statement that we would make, I would propose, would simply say that during the night hours, the, the two destroyers were attacked by uh, patrol boats. The attack was driven off. No casualties or damage to the destroyers. We believe uh, uh, several of the patrol boats were sunk. Details won't be available until daylight. That's okay. All right, I'll I'll take care. I just won't put that out. All right. I'll take care of it. Uh, anything else? No, I talked to Dylan, and he fully agrees with the action. I couldn't get hold of Bobby. He's nowhere that he can be found. But I'll keep a call in for him. From August 4th, 1964, President Johnson and his defense secretary... Robert McNamara. Later that day, the president calls congressional aide Claude Desatels, wanting to know how the press learned of the Gulf incidents. Again, they mention Senate Republican leader Everett Dirksen and also mention House Minority Leader Charlie Halleck and White House Chief Congressional Liaison Larry O'Brien. Hello. Yes, Mr. President. Uh, do we always get out these meetings? Can we have a meeting with the Cong- Congress without them announcing it? Oh, my God, somebody's announced yes, it? Yes, they all announced it. They were all told it was off the record, Mr. President, as always. That it was off the record, and consequently, uh, they were to come in the back door so as not to be seen. Oh, my God, who announced this? Doesn't say. It just says that the congressional sources said leaders of both parties been called at 645 White House Leadership Conference, presumably called, to brief lawmakers on the latest PT boat attack. Okay, we've always had this problem. Where it comes from, I don't know. He said I... I suppose, I don't know, Dirksen always says he doesn't talk, and Alec has always said that I respect the, pres- the office of the presidency, I never talk. I think maybe it does come from, but I can't say, I, we don't have no evidence, except once or twice when we've had some problems, that we, Larry has suggested maybe Dirksen should be the last one called, so I don't know where to point the finger. I suppose whenever we do, you do call these meetings, the president, the best thing to do is for us to hold off as long as we can before calling them, so to prevent this sort of thing. Told it was off the record, so. What time did you call them? Well, I think we started the call possibly around 3 o'clock, Mr. President. From 3 o'clock on, some of them we didn't get till 5, 5, 5 o'clock or so. But the calls roughly, st- no, it was late at night, about 3.30, between 3 and 3.30. I think Senator Mansfield was the first one calling. It seemed to me it was about 3.15, 3.20. We called, and we called the members themselves, not, not any staff people. So roughly around 3.15 was the. Well, that was exactly an hour and a half, two hours early. Yeah. We ought to call them at 435. Yeah, obviously. Obviously, whenever... That's what I asked them. I beg your pardon, sir. That's what I asked them to do. Oh, we weren't... We weren't really... Mike Bundy just... Didn't I tell them to call at 435? No, he says nobody told him. Okay, much better. President Johnson and his congressional aide, Claude Desatels, on August 4th, 1964. Later that day, the president and Larry O'Brien talk about a possible congressional resolution on the Gulf incident and how it might affect work on the poverty bill. They also discuss the president's upcoming address to the nation on the attacks. What effect is our asking Congress for a resolution to support us in Southeast Asia and bombing hell out of the Vietnamese tonight? What effect will that have on this bill? Will it kill it or help us? uh, it, uh, It won't hurt us, but I just don't know if it'll help or not. I think you'd be a little more reluctant to vote against the president. I would think so. It certainly is not going to hurt us. They ought to be personally attacking us too much. No, I wouldn't think so. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Any other any other news? No, nothing to disturb you with tonight. In other words, I have anything important. What time are you going on? I don't know. Uh, we we got to wait to see when we get over the targets. Yeah. Well, I, was, I know that just before you called on television, they said that you were going on. Yeah, we want to see whenever we, whenever we get on over the target. Well, good luck. Thank God, I hope we do. Thank you, my friend. Bye. President Johnson and his chief congressional aide, Larry O'Brien, on August 4th, 1964. Later that day, the president calls Republican presidential nominee and Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater. 
to tell him about his upcoming speech on the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Barry, I'm going to make a statement uh, in a little bit, uh, and I wanted to talk to you before I did. Uh, I don't know just what time it'll be, but it'll probably be uh, when we're sure that their radar screen has picked up uh, our, our plane. Uh, as President Commander-in-Chief, it's my duty to the American people to report that renewed hostile actions against U.S. ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have all have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action and reply. The initial attack on the destroyer Maddox on August 2nd was repeated today by a number of hostile vessels attacking two U.S. destroyers with torpedoes. The destroyers and the supporting aircraft acted at once on the orders given by me after the initial act of aggression. We believe at least two of the attacking boats were sunk. There were no U.S. losses. The performance of commanders and crews in this engagement is the highest tradition of the United States Navy. But repeated acts of violence against the armed forces of the United States must be met not only with alert defense, but with positive reply. The reply is being given. In the large sense, this new act of aggression aimed directly at our own forces must bring home to all of us again the importance to us in the United States in the struggle for peace and security in Southeast Asia. Now, when I say the reply is being given, Barry, I may elaborate on that a little bit depending on how safe I can be at the time I deliver the statement. Do you follow me? Yeah. Aggression by terror against the peaceful villagers of South Vietnam has now been joined by open aggression on the high seas against the United States of America. The determination of all Americans to carry out our full commitment to the people and government of South Vietnam will be redoubled by this outrage. Yet our response to the present will be limited and fitting. We Americans know, although others appear to forget, the risk of spreading conflict. We still seek no wider war. I have instructed the Secretary of State to make this position totally clear to friends, to adversaries, and indeed to all. I have instructed Ambassador Stevenson to raise this matter immediately and urgently before the Security Council of the United Nations. Finally, I have today met with the leaders of both parties in the Congress of the United States, and I have informed them that I shall immediately request the Congress to pass a resolution making it clear that our government is united in its determination to take all necessary measures in support of freedom and in defense of peace in Southeast Asia. I have been give, given encouraging assurance by these leaders that such a resolution will be promptly introduced, freely and expeditiously debated, and passed, I hope, with overwhelming support. I, it is a solemn responsibility to have to order even limited military action by forces whose overall strength is as vast and as awesome as those of the United States of America. But it is my considered conviction, shared throughout your government, that firmness in the right is indispensable to today for peace. That firmness will always be measured. Its mission is peace. President Johnson speaking to Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater on August 4th, 1964. That night, President Johnson speaks to the nation. In the larger sense, this new act of aggression aimed directly at our own forces again brings home to all of us in the United States the importance of the struggle for peace and security in Southeast Asia. Aggression by terror against the peaceful villagers of South Vietnam has now been joined by open aggression on the high seas against the United States of America. The determination of all Americans to carry out our full commitment to the people and to the government of South Vietnam will be redoubled by this outrage. Yet our response for the present will be limited and fitting. We Americans know, although others appear to forget, the risk of spreading conflict. We still seek no wider war. Shortly after the president's speech, U.S. aircraft bombed four North Vietnamese torpedo boat bases and an oil storage depot. Two Navy jets were shot down, 
one pilot was killed and another taken prisoner. Two days after the president's address on August 6, 1964, the president and Defense Secretary McNamara talk again, this time about the ongoing House and Senate hearings on a resolution that would grant the president unprecedented military powers. They mentioned several members of Congress, House Foreign Affairs Committee member Wayne Hayes, Appropriations Committee Chair George Mahan, and Committee member Gerald Ford. They also talk about Senate Democratic Whip Hubert Humphrey and Senate Foreign Relations Committee members Wayne Morse and Strom Thurmond. And you'll also hear mentions of U.N. Secretary General Utant and CIA Director John McCone. Mr. President, uh, I mentioned to you briefly the other day that Mayon wanted to hold a hearing tomorrow on Vietnam. He's being pressed to do this by Jerry Ford and Mitchell and the other Republican members. Uh, I thought perhaps we should have John McCone uh, brief them and try to keep defense out of this and avoid any partisan uh, probing here. But I didn't want to suggest this to man without your knowledge and approval. Yeah, I think it's all right. I don't know how much he talks. Uh, I thought he went a little pretty far the other day in uh, discussing all we were doing, but I guess that's all right. Well, I, uh, I did, too. I thought he went too far that time, but I think in this case he can... It looked like he was insisting on bringing it in, too. Uh, well, I noticed that. I, I was very surprised, as a matter of fact. And I see Humphreys out saying it on television, and uh, he that's how he explains it when they all say, well... Like Utah just said to me, how in the world do you reckon these folks are sending their PTO, PT boats out to shoot us? Humphrey said, well, I'll tell you why, because they thought we were launching them. I had a hell of a time with Morse this morning on that exact point. I think I finally shut him up. He insisted that our PT, that our destroyers were there to back up. He said it on television last night. He said that uh, he said we were launching our PT boats from the destroyers. Yeah, well, I, I just absolutely denied it, and I insisted the record be made clear this morning. I just got back from the House and Senate. How did you get along on that? It went very well. I think the vote in the Senate committee, as you probably know, was 16 to 1, and the vote in the House committee was, uh, there were, uh, was unanimous except for two present. Who uh, 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 oh, the Iowa, Iowa congressman, you know, the Gross, Gross, and uh, is it Dubinsky or I've got the wrong name, but it's another Republican. Gross and the other Republican voted president. president. And the, the other was their theory? They couldn't uh, go along with the resolution, but well, didn't know what to do. Well, yes, I think that was their theory, and and the reason they took that position was that that uh, they didn't want a no-win policy in another Korea. This was the attitude, and Wayne. Wayne Hayes was the one who first initiated that idea. He said he didn't know that he could go along with it if it was going to lead to another Korean and no-win policy. Then Gross picked it up, and then there were several others that took the same line. But when the vote came in, of course, Hayes fell in line and voted in favor of the resolution. But uh, on the whole, I think the hearings were very satisfactory. Uh, it was just a near-unanimous support for, not only for everything you've done, there was unanimous support for that, but near-unanimous support for everything you may do in the future. And generally, a, a blank check uh, authorization for further action, with the exception of this no-win group. And there's there were a few in the one or two in the Senate and several in the House committee. Who besides Morse? Thurman. Uh, well, Morse was opposed to it for one reason. Thurman for another. We yeah. Thurman who was on the no-win line. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I was talking about who else opposed this besides Morse. Only, Morse and Thurman. Morse was the only one who voted against it. Thurman uh, did not oppose. He just wanted to see stronger action. He opposed the, the current policy in South Vietnam. He insisted we ought to strike the North. And Khan wanted us to do so. CM wanted, to do, wanted us to do so. Of course, we rebutted that. CM never proposed any such thing. Okay. Uh, yes, I would do that. I'd call me out and, and try to arrange it. I tell him that he ought to get it down after we get this resolution through, and not it ought to be holding hearings till we get that through, because everybody is working day and night on that, talking to people in connection with it in the House and the Senate right. and the executive and uh, meeting over here and deciding what to do and just say, any time you take, why don't you schedule it sometime next week? Yeah, exactly, because tomorrow is going to be the crucial day of voting. It won't come up for vote today in the, in the House. Yeah. Okay. Fine, thanks. President Johnson and Defense Secretary Robert McNamara on August 6th, 1964. Now, at this point, the official word from the White House was that the Gulf attacks were unprovoked. But later that day, President Johnson calls his close friend James Rowe to vent his frustration with Senator Humphrey, who had broken with the administration line and revealed the covert role that the U.S. had been playing to support South Vietnam. I don't know how to get this message over, but... uh... 
Uh, this boy, our friend Hubert, is just destroying himself with his big mouth. Are you talking again? Yeah, all the time. Whenever he just can't stop it, he just got hydrophobia. And every responsible person uh, gets frightened when they see him. He hasn't missed any program, or he's just a, he's just like a wild man uh, when he kind of sees this thing in the distance. And what he ought to do is be a very retiring and very sober and very judicious and. Uh, uh, now, yesterday morning, he went on the TV, and looks like he's got by with it, but he set everybody in the Joint Chiefs of Staff and every person in town that's uh, that's uh, handling war plans, it just uh, scared them to death because he just blabbed everything that he had heard in a briefing, just like it was his personal knowledge. Wow. And almost uh, wanted to claim credit for it. They said, for instance, how would you account for these uh, PT boat attack on our destroyers when we innocently out there in the Gulf 60 miles from shore? And uh, McNamara said that that's a very difficult thing to explain the reasoning of these uh, people. It may be that they wanted to try to scare us out of the area. But that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't uh, uh, explain communist thinking on a good many matters. Rusk said substantially the same thing. Humphrey said, well, uh, we have been carrying on some operations in that area. And we've been having some covert operations where we have been going in and knocking out roads and petroleum things and so forth. And that's exactly what we have been doing. But the damn fool uh, got it up, and now he's got Morris talking about it, who wasn't in on the briefing. And it's just, uh, you just got to understand that you can't talk about war plans. You just can't talk about it. Now, uh, this morning, this morning, that fellow called me very upset, one of the highest officials in the government, and said, have you talked to Humphrey about a communication from Khrushchev? And I said, no. I haven't seen Humphrey, haven't seen anybody around Humphrey, haven't talked to my wife, haven't talked to a human being. Well, Humphrey has discussed the details of communications with Khrushchev that somebody must have let him know about, and with a, uh, a correspondent for NBC. And uh, it's, it's the one thing that could make Khrushchev uh, uh, drop a bomb on us. And he just ought to keep his goddamn big mouth shut on foreign affairs at least until the election's over. And uh, uh, just say that uh, this has just got people running wild and they're running in every moment to me. And uh, for him not to be speculating on why the communists would be doing something. Just say that's, uh, I've got all I can do is speculating on why I do something. But it's not up to me. They don't pay him to do this. This is not like he's getting a fee to speak to the druggist. He's just doing this free. And he's hurting his government. He's hurting us. From August 6th, President Johnson speaking with close friend James Rowe. In spite of his frustration, the president didn't need to be worried. The next day, in a near unanimous vote, Congress approved the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, giving the president blanket powers to escalate U.S. involvement in Vietnam. President Johnson, now at his Texas ranch, called Secretary McNamara two days later on August 8th to talk about news coverage about the Gulf incidents. You'll hear them mention National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy. He got by without hearing any more from out Southeast Asia. That's right. We, we have no reports of any imminent action. You hear much more about our launching of planes too early? Oh, I think that that's dead. Uh, the new, you perhaps have seen the New York Times or Washington Post this morning. They no, no, I, I haven't seen either one of them. Well, they both printed my statement of yesterday, and, and now we're going to sort of credit for having been very statesmanlike because the, one of the five points I listed was that we wanted to be certain that, that the North Vietnamese, and I used the word, and others, uh, were aware of your decision that this would be a firm but limited response. And the Washington Post says quite clearly it was intended that the end others would include Communist China so that Communist China would be alerted that although these planes were in the air, picked up by their radars, moving north, that we made it clear it was not our intention that they would go into China to bomb China. And that was one of the reasons for the, the broadcast. I think the story's dead, Mr. President. All right. I do think that if you have a press conference today, you're going to get questions on the, on the claim that of the North Vietnamese that their strike on the 2nd against the Maddox 
was retaliation for U.S. participation in the strike of July 30, 31 against those islands. And I, I called Mac this morning and asked him to, to write a specific question and a specific answer to this. This is a very delicate subject, and, and he and I agreed on such an answer, and he said he would get it to you. All right, what's, what's the net of it? Well, the net of it is that, that you state categorically that U.S. forces did not participate in, were not associated with any alleged incident of that kind. They weren't even in the area at that point, and didn't enter the area until two days here within Washington and in the press on this subject, and I think it's one that you have to disassociate yourself from and and, uh, and certainly not admit that any such incident took place, but neither should you get in a position of denying it, because the North Vietnamese have asked the ICC to come in there and examine the site, and, and uh, it would be very unfortunate if, if they developed proof that you, in effect, had misstated the case. Well, uh... Did the South Vietnamese launch an attack that period? On the 30th, the night of the 30th and continuing into the morning of the 31st, uh, the South Vietnamese ran one of these patrol boat uh, raids against these two North Vietnamese islands. It's part of that covert uh, operational plan. It was what John was alluding to yeah. when he talked to the leaders, and, and either they or someone else have, have made the... Uh, statements to the press about this. And the New York, or rather the Washington Post, if I remember correctly, has quite an article on it today. Well, there's several. Here, here's one on the Post. Maddox incident re-examined. Miscalculation theory weighed in Viet crisis. This is by Murray Martyr. Uh, he goes on to say that it's now thought that it was probably a reprisal action by, by North Vietnam. And then there's another article someplace inside the paper on the same subject. Quite clear that that there's a lot of talk being given to this. I'm sure you'll get a question on it. But Mac will get that written suggested answer down to you. Later that day, the president calls Mr. Bundy to make plans about a White House signing ceremony for the Gulf Resolution. Uh, we have the joint resolution here. You don't want to sign it at the ranch, do you? No, I don't think so. I'm going to go sign it up there and have a little ceremony. Seems so to me. To get you want to do that Monday? Yeah, I think so. I'll check with Jack. Uh, talk, to, talk to Larry. And see I'll talk to Larry about who ought to come. Would you like to do it in the treaty room? Yeah. Yeah. Over in the uh, mansion? Yeah. Television cameras? Yeah. Okay, I'll talk to Jack and talk to Larry. Uh, do you care which time of day? No. No, I'd say early in the morning. They don't have anything else. 9.30, 10 o'clock. Okay, fine. Uh, you're coming definitely tomorrow. Is that the plan? Oh, gosh, I forgot about that. I might come Monday and get there by lunch, but... Well, there's no reason to schedule this till the afternoon, Mr. President. All right, that's all right. Yeah, do it. Um, I, I'm off. You're not coming till Monday morning unless things get much tougher. All right, let's do it there. Okay. From August 8th, 1964, President Johnson and National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy. The president signed the Gulf Resolution on August 10th, and six months later, the United States launched one of the largest, most intense aerial campaigns in history, Operation Rolling Thunder. Questions remain about what exactly happened in the Gulf of Tonkin more than 50 years ago, but what isn't in question is how the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution raised the stakes in Vietnam and set the stage for one of the longest and costliest conflicts in American history. On the next episode of Presidential Recordings, a look at the days following the 1964 presidential election. Follow Presidential Recordings wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. The Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library and Foundation, along with the University of Virginia Miller Center, have more conversations from the Johnson presidency. You can find them at lbjtapes.org.